This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Eye glazing stuff, and it's left to uh, the legal minds to interpret. This is why we get Joe Newberger in here periodically, Global News Radio's legal expert, to uh, really unpack some things of significance. And this is one such occasion. I wanted to welcome Joe back to the program. Good afternoon, Joseph. Good afternoon, John. How are you? Very good. But, uh, you know, and I know we've been on about this in the past. Uh, you've written about it extensively. This is the uh, Gameshi rules, as you call them, in yeah. accusations of sexual assault. Uh, back, uh, I guess, in December of 2018, uh, there was a new law, C-51, that came into effect that basically said uh, defense attorneys have to make known their evidence and submit it so that the complainant's attorneys, who could, by the way, represent them in cross-examination, <laughs> of this type of material, it sort of slants or skews, it tips the scales of justice, and it doesn't allow for, uh, I guess, uh, the defense to be able to do this uh, in a way that, you know, would uh, muster up the most vigorous defense for their client. But here's the question I have for you, because we've talked about this. This bill was passed unanimously by Parliament. Uh, Unanimously. There was no dissent on this at all? There was, you know, in the drafting of it, there was some discussion about uh, certain aspects of it, but but by and large, it passed without any amendments, without any regard to the uh, committee's evidence, which was, you know, drawn partially from uh, lawyers who spoke before the committees. But yeah, there was there was no amendments to it, and really didn't garner much attention because when it comes to political votes. Uh, you know, anything involving somebody who's accused never seems to matter until that person is sitting in someone's office having been accused of the offense. Well, and I've read some articles on this recently in the post-millennial, for example, uh, yeah. Diana Davidson writing about it, suggesting that this new legislation is a form of virtue signaling, which asks our judges to engage in inappropriate and dangerous social activism. You see it the same way? is absolutely right on point. And what is so critical about what's going on across the country now is the courts are trying to grapple with what does this new legislation mean and how do they how do they implement it? And it's a real problem because the judges aren't understanding the legislation. It's complex, not in, in my opinion, not well drafted. And uh, and we're seeing one court in Saskatchewan declare certain portions of the new legislation unconstitutional and other courts saying it is constitutional. And, and and there was another ruling, frankly, which was quite amusing. The judge didn't even understand the evidence and how it would apply and whether it would be admissible or not based upon the new rules. And so couldn't make a decision. And so we're seeing certain chaos now play out across certain courts. And this is a problem for the administration of justice. But it's also not helping anybody who is a complainant in a case and a true victim because this doesn't help them easier. It just simply muddies the waters. And we're going to see this now play out with multiple constitutional challenges. And I think just a real quagmire where we can wind up with wrongful convictions. Well, in a practical sense, let's just remember uh, the Gameshi case, for example, there had been emails submitted. I mean, he had retained these, I guess, you know, helped him in the end uh, from some of these complainant, these women uh, who said he abused them. But after the alleged abuse, uh, they were still in contact with him. And so when that surfaced in court, uh, that was kind of the linchpin that undid their uh, credibility to claim that they were assaulted because they were still going back. Now, I want to be very careful here because the point I'm making now is with this new rule in place, the Gameshi rule, effectively, uh, if the defense had that ace up their sleeve to show these women may not be credible in their complaint, they would have to table that evidence and 
the complainant's lawyer would be able to, I guess, adjust uh, their complaint accordingly, right? Absolutely right, John. That And that's an excellent point, and you made it very clearly. So somebody who's accused of an offense might have emails of this individual well after the person has alleged the offense saying, I want to go out with you again, can't wait to see you at the movie, can't wait out to go out with you to the club, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd be normally, in the past, be able to cross-examine on this relatively non-sexual information to show that the person wanted to continue a relationship, and that calls into question their credibility and reliability about consent. But now all of this has to be vetted before a judge, and it's disclosed to the uh, complainant who has her own lawyer and actually has standing to make submissions and cross-examine the accused on their affidavit at the proceeding. It is astounding disclosure, which really allows a person to evade sophisticated and well-thought-out cross-examination by pre-planning and pre-preparing their evidence with a lawyer. It really is going to lead to wrongful convictions. Well, not wrongful, uh, well, yes, wrongful, but also more convictions. So that's the end game here, according to uh, folks such as yourself. It's just really, again, virtue signaling, or there's this campaign because of the zeitgeist to just show more convictions and that somehow the legal system is doing its job. Right, and but, but you're right. It, it, it's to boost convictions. But why I say wrongful is people have to wrap their heads around not every allegation that's made against somebody is actually real or true. Sometimes they are fabricated. And so this justice system that we had has to seek truth. This doesn't help the truth-seeking process. And so we have very serious dangers. And by having to disclose this evidence and have this process, it's very bad. And now what we are seeing is mass confusion in the courts. All right. So you're railing against it, and others are as well. Uh, at any point, could it be rescinded, this law repealed? I could only hope, but I doubt it. Even if we get a new government, even if the conservative government comes in, I can't see uh, them really taking a hard look at the legislation and trying to undo it. I think they'll just let the courts deal with it and declare whatever's unconstitutional and constitutional, and then if they have to redraft, redraft. I don't think either party would go back and correct the, the incredible mistake that they made unless there's some inquiry that goes on as a result of a, a, a wrongful conviction. But, you know, we're still at the very early beginnings of the battle here. You know, that's why I brought up as the initial point, it was passed unanimously by Parliament, unanimously, uh, so everybody was on the same page and there was no dissent. Uh, so this one actually, uh, you feel, will be brought up on constitutional grounds before the Supreme Court? Uh, absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, on another matter that may uh, make its way to the Supreme Court on constitutional grounds, story out of B.C. I was fascinated with this because uh, there are so many dimensions to it, but uh, there's a court, the Supreme Court in the case in B.C., uh, where a father is contesting his child's uh, right or desire to be, uh, it, whereas the child was a girl but is now a boy, by uh, the child's own definition and the mother, the mother and the father are split. Uh, so the mother has uh, a bevy of experts, psychologists and the rest who have uh, said, you, you can't deter the kid. It would not be uh, to his advantage, it would be de- deleterious to their mental health and well-being. And uh, hormone treatment uh, therapy is uh, a good idea to complete, I guess, uh, this whole reassignment. So. Where is this matter uh, legally? Because you've got parental rights uh, versus the rights of a child, I guess, on matters of medical treatment and how they want to define themselves. Yeah, what, what... It, it's a it's a very interesting case that you raise, John. Um, and it, it's interesting because across Canada, each province has its own rules 
uh, and legislation with respect to the age that a minor can consent to their own treatment and nobody can really overrule it. So in Ontario, um, there was that sad case with that young lady who was 11 and age 12 discontinued chemotherapy in favor of more natural treatment and then passed away and, and that was challenged. But it was ruled that the child was able to make their own judgments on treatment. And then in other jurisdictions in Quebec, I believe it's 14, I think Manitoba 16. And so I'm not sure what British Columbia is, but the child who we're talking about in this particular case is 14. And so this has very serious implications when it comes to treating cancer and other ailments, including you know gender identity issues. And so um, it, this case will go to the top court in British Columbia, and it really pits against um, it pits the parents' rights against each other as well as the child. And and ultimately, at a certain age, uh, the court is going to have to find that a child has a right to decide and determine their own medical treatment and course of treatment, even though, frankly, and I'm not saying this case, but in other cases, it could be misguided. Uh, like we saw in Ontario, but it it has very serious implications, and I think the father's application in uh, in British Columbia certainly has some merit because the father wants to be involved in the best interests and decisions of of the child. Well, by the same token, though, the mother is saying this child's decision is in the best interest. She supports the child's interest and uh, has her experts. He has his and says, you know, his experts are uh, claiming that, you know, gender identity theory is just that. Uh, it's not scientifically, uh, or it, there's no scientific evidence to back that. So this whole thing is going to be played out, I guess, in a battle of the experts and uh, who the judges tend to believe. It's already made its way to the Supreme Court in B.C. The father, by the way, is calling it totalitarian interference in his uh, child's upbringing. That's an interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah, I think that's a little extreme, um, and you know, uh, I, I certainly understand the sentiment of a father who wants to be involved in in the decision making by the child. And I, frankly, that the parents are in conflict doesn't help. But ultimately, by the time this gets decided by the Supreme Court of Canada, it's going to be moot because the child will certainly be of age to make his own decision or her own decision uh, and and follow along the treatment path that that, uh, he requires. Yeah, I was going to say, why off the hop didn't the judges just say, let's put this off until the child is age of whatever, majority at 11? Now the child is 14, still tender years. I mean, I would think that uh, that's still a little premature to let a kid make a decision for themselves. Uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. But that's why I raised the point about the case, which was in Ontario and and then Quebec is I think 14 and, and, and Manitoba 16. So all the provinces do recognize that at a certain age, children, even though of minor uh, minor years, are able to make very critical decisions about their own health care, which includes treating illnesses as serious as cancer. So um, I'm not saying this, this decision for this child in British Columbia is any less serious to them uh, because gender issues are very important. But, you know, along the way, there will have to be an age statutorily where a child can make the decision and no parent or other party can interfere with it. Wasn't there a celebrated case out of Winnipeg, I think, years ago, where uh, a child of Jehovah's Witnesses' parents uh, wanted to deny a blood transfusion, but the courts overruled the parents? Yes, there was. And I'm not sure of the age of that child. Um, and it was overruled, and that's the parents who were making the decision. And in the other case I referred to was the child who was making the decision in Ontario, and unfortunately the child's decision was upheld and the child passed away. I mean, it, it's sad. And, and when you think about when someone's life is at stake, you know, and it's a child under 18, you know, we're all as parents, you know, this is hitting in our guts that we want to do everything possible to save a child's life. 
And it's extremely hard to think that somebody who's 14, 12, 13, or 14 years of age really has enough life experience to make these decisions, even though they think they do. Um, but it takes lots of years of maturity to try and figure out things. And it's really sad, and sometimes it has extremely dire consequences. Indeed, uh, and requires Solomonic wisdom, uh, exhibited by Joseph Newberger here this afternoon on The Oakley Show, Global News Radio's legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Joe, appreciate it. Have a great day. You're too kind, John. Have a great show. (laughs) All right, take care. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 